Hey everyone, it's Michael Fair from BIT here. Hope you're all keeping well. Thanks for listening and checking out the latest episode of Talking with Tech Leaders here at BIT. Today I'm joined with Alistair Rennie, currently CIO at Research Data Scotland. Uh, Alistair has a fantastic background and career with time at student loans company Westcott Credit Services. We talked through his time at university and his degree in engineering and also his PhD in engineering and ask him questions around his driver's biggest mistake, advice to aspiring techies, and then we finish up with some personal questions. Uh, it's a great uh, podcast, really interesting guy, Alistair, and I hope you enjoy it. Today I'm joined with Alistair Rennie, currently CIO at Research Data Scotland. Thanks very much, Alistair, for joining us on Talking with Tech Leaders. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, it's really good to be here. Sebastian. Well, thanks very much for taking the time. Obviously, part one, we'll go through your career to date and how you've reached the heights of CIO uh, and through your career. We'll talk obviously about your education. Uh, part two, we'll go through some knowledge and experience uh, and then obviously some personal questions in part three. So obviously, we always start off with education um, and you went to the University of Glasgow and picked a degree in engineering. That's right. In fact, engineering was a passion right from as far back as I can actually remember. Uh, and uh, sort of working through school, uh, I did all sorts of things, uh, physical engineering, repairs, all sorts of things, built a car, things like that. Uh, so engineering just was a logical uh, thing for me to do. And it was a passion as well. I had a fortune to get into Glasgow. I studied there for four years. Thoroughly enjoyed the course. It was really, really inspiring. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I started there, though, was programming. I really enjoyed it. It was one of these things that uh, they, they'd started putting programming into the engineering course. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really, really uh, inspiring to see what you could do with programs. It was creative, similar to the way of creating something within an engineering environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were actually creating a program that actually solved a problem or did something uh, that you hadn't expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what kind of drew you in, kind of grown up to go and decide engineering? Was it in high school? Was it a high school teacher? What kind of pulled you into that kind of avenue for your degree? It was a friend of the family who was an engineer. Uh, he was a, a research engineer with uh, Noble, uh, and uh, he was uh, doing a whole lot of experimental work with uh, blast welding. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'd never heard of. I must have been about uh, 11 or 12 at the time. And he took me down to uh, one of the test sites and uh, was showing welding dissimilar metals together. And I had seen welding and stuff like that where I had grown up. Uh, so I kind of knew you couldn't weld the similar metals together. So mm-hmm. we uh, went and uh, saw some of these experiments uh, taking place. And it's absolutely fascinated me. I, we, he used to come over maybe sort of once a week uh, to the family. And I used to spend hours just chatting to him about engineering and all the different aspects of it. So it was hugely rewarding. I just sparked it, that curiosity. Yeah, it, it, and, and that was it. And I had the opportunity while I was growing up uh, to put in practice a lot of that stuff. I started getting involved in uh, taking engines apart, taking cars apart, putting them back together again, making things work, which I thought... Mm-hmm. 
hey, if we can do this, it's great. So I thought engineering is going to be for me. So you found your passion early on. Yeah. Um, and did you kind of get to kind of tamper with that quite a bit at high school or does it kind of just doing stuff in your spare time before you got to your degree? A bit of both. I, I took engineering at school. Uh, fortunately, the school I was at had engineering uh, as courses. And of course, we had metalwork and woodwork, uh, as you have early on. Uh, but then we had uh, actual engineering courses as well yep. uh, in at school. Uh, and ended up, uh, when I was doing my hires, I couldn't do engineering at school because they didn't have the the, uh, the skill, but we mm-hmm. went to local technical college. That was fascinating because then you were in amongst other engineers uh, and engineering apprentices, etc. cetera, you were chatting to them. You could see what else was going on. So it, it just confirmed to me that that was the right thing to do. No, fantastic. So you've, you've finished your, uh, your degree, completed that in uh, 1980, and then you've went in to join... BAE Systems. Yes, it was uh, it was actually a company called Yard, Yarrow Admiral, Admiralty Research Department, uh, which was part of the Yarrow Group, uh, which was then taken over or later taken over by BAE. Uh, but yes, uh, it was that was uh, for me uh, a great time because it was the real sharp end of engineering. Uh, we were designing systems, and then we were going and seeing these systems being made. Mm-hmm. The consultancy work we were doing was real-time engineering, solving problems and, and delivering things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I started doing there was actually working with the uh, uh, computing team mm-hmm. and started writing programs to solve engineering problems, things that the engineers previously didn't have access to. So wrote uh, programs on pressure vessel design, on uh, fan blade design, things like that that really made a huge difference to how we actually design some of the engineering things. So mm-hmm. saw very early on the con- contribution that, you know, writing programs and, and new solutions and systems could actually make to what we were doing in an engineering sense. Mm-hmm. And, and was that kind of through doing your degree that kind of brought that programming experience in and you tried to apply the new tools you'd learned, yeah? That, that Absolutely. That's exactly what it was, Michael, because I had the opportunity uh, at university to pick computing and then I took it right through three years. Mm-hmm. Then that made, gave me a good grounding. I've been able to then think, how can I apply this to real world engineering problems? Do you know what you were coding in? Uh, so it was on Fortran. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Fortran 4 and then Fortran 77. Going back a good few years now, uh, a little bit of C thrown in as well, which was good. Yeah. But then I I was enticed back to university. It, it was a, a colleague uh, who had a, a really, really interesting engineering problem to solve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, part of it is I ended up running the computing department for the for the uh, department, uh, the computing systems for the department. So uh, it was just one of these sort of things that happened because I had an mm-hmm. interest in computing. I actually started getting much more into what are these boxes that were running some of this complex maths on. Uh, and, uh, and and started playing around with that a lot more, uh, understanding computing systems, operating systems, getting more into different languages. And that was your, your PhD? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it was. Uh, so the, the, the title covers about three pages because of the complexity. So mm-hmm. It's one of these things that, uh, but I, yeah, it was, it was a blend of all sorts of things. And that's what I think made it so interesting. And it was a, a real world application. It wasn't a theoretical uh, piece of work. It actually had to have an outcome. So, in terms of kind of doing your your PhD, is there a different route that you think you would have taken if you hadn't kind of went back and and done your PhD? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, part of it was the uh, ability to stretch my own mind 
I, I was working in mathematical areas that I had uh, only touched on at university uh, and now using some really advanced mathematical techniques. Uh, these mathematical, mathematical techniques had to be backed up with writing my own computer programs to solve them uh, or to work through the maths. The computer analysis we were using was the high-end uh, analysis programs. And then together with the engineering solution, which was to come out with something that was relatively workable on a page, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. So that stretched my mind way beyond where I think it would have been even working within the consultancy I was working in. But it stretched it into a lot more into the computing side than I had probably expected to go because I hadn't really thought about going into computing specifically as a career at that point. No, fantastic. From there, you've kind of went to University of Strathclyde. Also, you've done your PhD. That, there's that industrial consultancy is that a continuation or is that something new? Yeah, I, I spent a couple of years uh, after uh, finishing my PhD working with the consultancy. So we started up the consultancy with uh, a couple of colleagues within uh, the uh, the department uh, and specifically looking at how we could use some of our gained knowledge to train so part of it was training people in industry. Uh, a lot of engineering uh, companies were really lacking the analysis skills that they needed to do some of the high-end analysis work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also provided a consultancy service for those high-end analysis uh, skills that we had developed. Uh, so using our engineering analysis tools to solve very complex problems. We had uh, one which really, really interesting. We had a... Mm-hmm a bus company who were selling buses uh, across the Singapore, one of the real criteria that they had to solve was these buses drove over the ditches in the uh, at the sides of the roads. These ditches could be concrete channels about 18 inches deep, and buses were breaking in half. Wow. So what they wanted to do was redesign their buses to be flexible enough, but that the stress didn't break them. So we spent about uh, oh, a year, year and a half working very closely with the bus company, doing a, a complete three-dimensional model of the buses that they were building and looking at the stress areas across the whole of the, the bus chassis and come up with a solution uh, that allowed them to then sell these buses. So very practical application, but it was top-end analysis that we were doing. Yeah. So they, they were they, both the uh, Singaporean government and uh, the, the service were delighted with uh, the outcome of it, but it was so interesting to actually be able to do that. It, phenomenal. I can imagine when you've kind of got a real-world world problem in front of you yeah. that you're solving, and then when you finally get to the end of that, no, it, 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 I think that that's the bit that always drives me is, is if you can get an outcome mm-hmm. that makes something better, to, you always get that sense of, of uh, satisfaction out of that. Yeah, and I'm sure collecting the data on where the buses were breaking, why they were breaking, where the stresses were coming from was a lot harder to gather then than maybe it would be now with some of the tools and techniques and things people have got. Oh, yes. Uh, we actually got buses uh, and uh, we... Um, Set out in the uh, the company's uh, car park. We cleared the car park for a week, mm-hmm. and we set out uh, a old railway sleepers and uh, other things in the car park. And we drove, <laughs> got them to drive the buses over these. We'd string gauged up 
a whole massive areas of these buses uh, uh-huh. with data loggers uh, to validate the models that we had created. Uh, so we were driving these buses at quite fast speed over yeah. these uh, logs and uh, all sorts of obstacles. And yeah. the uh, <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. Is, this, is this really necessary, Alistair? Yep, definitely. Punch it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I actually wanted to drive the buses, but they wouldn't let me near them. <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic. And again, keeping that interest and curiosity, and again, real world problems. Um, and then Howden's is the next the next stop for you. Yeah, ten year stop. Yes, that was a long stop. Uh, again, running at the sort of leading edge of a lot of engineering stuff, uh, which was fascinating. But having then uh, got a lot of computing background behind me, uh, and the engineering at that time didn't really have a huge um, influence in what was happening. We had some research work that was going on into three-dimensional modeling Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, building uh, of some of the very much more complex solutions, but most of it was still done on drawing boards. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was an opportunity to move into CAD, but also to start writing engineering solutions. So I went back into engineering, but with a huge commitment to, for myself, to develop computer-based solutions to make a, a significant difference. It's one of these things I looked at, I look back on it actually a little bit, almost a little bit of regret because uh, I had a, an office I worked in, we had a, about 50, 60 draftsmen working in there at the beginning. And at the end of it, because we'd moved on to CAD and because people were doing things very much faster, mm-hmm. they were down to 20 draftsmen. And I, you know, you sort of look back and think, hmm, what happened? What did I do there? Did I actually uh, impact people's jobs and, and where they ended up? But in reality, actually, what we were doing was we were taking a lot of the drudgery out. So we could do changes so much faster. Wizardry then, wizardry. <laughs> exactly. So the, the original drawing still took the same length of time, generally, mm-hmm. uh, the, creating that first version, but then version two, version three, version four, fraction of the time and that was why we managed to reduce the size of the drawing office most of these draftsmen then went on to become engineers and we actually started redeploying uh, engineers into more active areas the other area that we worked on uh, and particularly i i had a huge passion for was some of the the really complex uh, engineering calculations we had we had one particular calculation that was a kind of iterative solution but it took three months for two engineers to work their way through it. Mm-hmm. So I, I sat with the engineers going through this for the first time for three months and coded it up. My solution then mm-hmm. came up with the same solution in three days. Mm-hmm. So these guys could now go on and do real mm-hmm. creative engineering so we can actually do better things with them. So that, that for me was one of these things that you learn, you think, mm-hmm. Okay, so what we want to do is take out the drudgery, the difficult parts of work, and the things that are not really delivering value, and change those into computing solutions. A little bit of what you might call robotics, as we would call it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was a, a, a big, a big thing for me was actually making sure that we can actually deliver improved solutions. And spent basically ten years doing that within uh, Howden's, mm-hmm. uh, and. 
ended up running the uh, company technology services team. So it wasn't called an IT team in those days. Uh, it was technology services. Actually, I had more than just computing because I had the uh, test and development services working for me as well. Uh, but that allowed me as well to mm-hmm. stretch into uh, the, the analysis, the purpose of analysis and getting analysis right, getting architecture right, and then also working in security because that was the early days of viruses. So we had a few viruses floating about in floppy disks, if anybody remembers what a floppy disk is. So, uh, yeah, those contain viruses, and that's how we spread viruses in those days. Uh, Fortunately, containable. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, you know, over the kind of 10-year period from kind of principal engineer and developer management role um, in computing, how, how was your kind of progression into managerial leadership, what was the kind of team size like, and what was that? Did you find that naturally? It, it seemed to be natural. Um, I think when I started working right at the very beginning with Yard, mm-hmm. uh, my boss was very, very proactive in that he said to me as a, a graduate at that point and said, Right, those two draftsmen there, you're working with them. Make sure that you understand what they need you to give them so that they can keep themselves busy. Uh, rabbit in headlights time you think me seriously yes um they're working for you You, you've got to give them enough work to keep them going and uh that was absolutely you know it was terrifying at that point what i learned from that was that actually the earlier you start doing these things the better so by the time i had gone through uh back to do my phd and back out into working in uh in howden's and then had draftsmen working for me other engineers working for me and then a development team working for me it didn't seem like a huge chore to suddenly be a manager i the managing side of it had uh had come along relatively straightforwardly and easily uh and and I can look back on it. I think I didn't actually sit down and go, oh, my goodness, I'm a manager now. <laughs> but that, that effectively started development right from the very beginning. So 10 years you've been there. What kind of made you think it's time for something else? Was it the kind of longevity? Was it that you were approached by a lovely IT recruiter? <laughs> no, it was actually something completely different. I had uh, spent an awful long time mm-hmm. working abroad. Uh, in the US, uh, in Europe. And I think the the last sort of 18 months particularly were quite bad. I spent probably about six months of the year uh, over that period uh, out of the country. Mm -hmm. From a family perspective, this is not really the the best thing for me. Uh, So I thought, no, I need to to make a change. So it's purely to do with my family circumstances more than it was to do with that career progression. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... It was purely fortuitous. I I came home one weekend. I got a call from a friend who said, I heard you had think, were thinking about moving. Uh, why don't you give this company a call? And I did. And they said, oh, well, we're looking for a head of IT. Mm-hmm. I said, well, okay, uh, these are the things I can do. Uh, and they said, that's what we need you to do. So Amazing. I went and joined them. So that was when I joined the, the co-op, yeah. Oh, fantastic. And kind of through you know, Lander in there, head of IT, did you have a plan? I wasn't to say the presence 100 days. You know, when you go into a kind of company like that, do, do you kind of set out now that, this is what you should do in those first couple of weeks, months. What was quite interesting is that they had they didn't have a, a head of IT role, uh, but they had a huge transformation that they needed to undertake within the organisation, and they had an expansion program underway as well. So 
what was really quite exciting for me was I landed in there to create a strategy, to create an IT service that delivered what the business was transforming into. Mm-hmm. That in itself was hugely challenging because, well, I had done strategy stuff uh, while I was working with Howden's. It was working with a company that I knew well and knew and understood, whereas I was landing in with a company that itself was going through transformation. And they really didn't know yet where they wanted to go, but they needed IT systems and services to to match that. Uh, And then they had embarked on uh, a year 2000 program as well, because they had confirmed that the IT systems were going to fail. Mm -hmm. So, right, that had to be replaced. So we had a massive program on that. But then we had to provide a strategy that said, how do we make things better for the, the, the company? How do we make things faster? How do we make things more accurate? Uh, etc. So there was a, a stack of problems that they had to solve. Um, so that, that was uh, hugely exciting to have a, a, almost a clean sheet of paper, but in a role that didn't have any definition at that point. So I had to define the role and say, right, this is what I'm going to do in this role, and then define the strategy as it went with it. And not everyone can do that because a lot of people like direction. I mean, you're kind of popped down. It's like, Right, off you go. Go play. Not play, but find out. You know what you're going to be doing when you're kind of trying to identify problems within the company. Not problems, but the company. You need to shape it a certain way. And you're speaking to the directors. The directors are going to have different problems, ideas, suggestions. Yeah. And then when you go down here and speak to one of the guys that's been there for ten years, IT. Yeah. He then go. Actually, that's not the problem. These are all the problems we've got. Yeah, that happens everywhere. Yeah. And every role I have been in, uh, you have this, well, the company thinks it's going that way, but actually there's all these other things going on that Mm -hmm. people have not surfaced up. And what I realized, uh, I guess, fairly early on in in that role, particularly within uh, co-op, and I've carried through since then, is actually one of the biggest skills as a head of IT is actually being a super business analyst. And I don't mean super good, but I mean, at, mm-hmm. at the highest level, you are a business analyst. You are finding out what that business needs to do uh, and translating that into a strategy in the same way as a business business analyst would create uh, a requirement spec. And effectively, a strategy is only a very high level uh, requirement spec that determines what you're going to do over the next period of years uh, to deliver the services for that company. It's got to be dynamic. It's got to be changeable. You've got to be able to be flexible and understand how the business is going to change. And therefore, your strategies have to change along with it. But for me, that was a sort of, yeah, inspired moment that said, you've got to make sure that all you people that work for you understand your message, but that you fully understand what the company's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Imagine the IT department, I love an analogy, like a big bus. You're driving it. You've got your wing mirrors. You can see behind you, but then... There might be blind spots, and that's what you're saying. You need to get to those spots and find out yeah. what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and therefore, within IT, and I think this is one of the, the strengths that you can develop within IT, is you actually know the whole component of a business. Individual operations teams and, and particularly uh, perhaps divisions within those operations teams see one part of a business mm-hmm. within the IT function. You should be looking right across the whole business and looking to integrate all of those services and act as a almost like a, a translator, as a collaborator and as a, a friend for all to bring them together so you can actually work 
uh, almost like a catalyst in the business, pulling people together and saying, well, they're doing this over here. You're doing that over there. Why don't we try and do it slightly differently, but do it together and see if we can come out with a, a combined outcome? Completely. And and back then, are you getting buy-in from, yeah. you know, the CEO, obviously, IT department now, IT team, Yeah, 20 years ago, was it starting to move into like this is, or are you still fighting that fight to be like, this is really important? To be honest, I've always taken it up there. Yeah. Uh, for me, it has to be at, at CEO level, you know, so if I'm not at the table, then it doesn't matter to me, to be perfectly honest. But I will beat the path to the CEO's door and make sure that I get his engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my my interest is in influencing uh, his view and the other senior management team. So whether I'm as a director on the on the ta- at the table or whether I, whether I'm somewhere else in the organisation, that will not stop me actually creating that pathway to where the people I need to get in touch with and speak to and influence to make sure we do the right things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think. You know, we, in some respects, we, we as an industry, say we've not got a seat in the top table. There's a problem here. The problem is not so much with having a seat at the top table. It's about having the influence. It's being able to make that, that connection and actually saying, well, I'm bloody minded enough. I'm going to have to have that conversation with them. I'll go and do it. And knowing that you should do that. Mm-hmm. No, completely. Not really good advice. Very solid. And you've went then uh, to a company I've worked with before. Uh, many years ago, SIPA, uh, yes, Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, and head of information uh, systems. How was that? Oh, that that was great fun. We had so many challenges. Um, it, first introduction to public sector, mm-hmm. and uh, my boss said to me at the time, he said, "You know, be careful. This is public sector, not private sector. Uh, we can't turn decisions around in minutes." Well, mm-hmm. actually, the, the bits of private sector I'd worked in. He didn't turn around decisions in minutes anyway. So actually working in public sector didn't seem that bad mm-hmm. by comparison with some of the, uh, the the other challenges. So I thought, right, okay, well, we'll do a lot of listening and <laughs> make sure we get the, 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 the tone right. Mm-hmm. There was one huge program of work uh, which was just starting off, which was really uh, interesting because effectively it was going to touch about 75% of the business. So there was going to be a massive transformation, mm-hmm. massive expansion, about a 50% expansion in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, all of the services and, and delivery of the services were going to change. So we had to basically re-engineer all of our applications, all of our systems and services. Uh, so it, it was a huge strategy opportunity as well as uh, a technical challenge. Uh, there was security challenges. There was architecture challenges. You know, so every single kind of problem that you could think about from an IT perspective was embedded in all of the, the, the systems and services that we're doing. But the biggest challenge I faced when I got there was that IT's reputation was so poor that we're looking at outsourcing. And uh, the other thing my boss said to me was, you've got three months. You need to turn this around in three months. So you've already come into a fight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the doors were barricaded when I got there. 
Um, and that, 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 was a, that was a challenge. You know, the, the, the perception of IT was poor. Now, when I got in and I started talking to my team and saying, right, okay, give me the, the, the hard sell on this. What's the nuts and bolts? Where are the problems? Mm-hmm. What I saw was that the reputation of IT was worse than the delivery. So the delivery was poor, but it wasn't absolutely dire. But the reputation was absolutely dire. And it was dire because of communication. Mm-hmm. We didn't tell people what we were doing. We didn't tell people what we couldn't do. We didn't keep them up to date with things in, in the progress. So we would do things like, we'll, we'll give you this on Friday. Friday came. You didn't tell them that it hadn't been delivered. They came and asked you on Monday mm-hmm. and said, you said you were going to have this on Friday. Yeah, they managed to get it finished. Or oh, when's it going to be? Maybe next Friday. What do you mean? Maybe next Friday. Well, I'm not sure if it's going to be next Friday. Maybe the Friday after that. So that whole expectation management was absolutely terrible. Yeah. So that was the first thing I did. It was actually reset expectation, but then start working on why we were having problems. Where were some of the problems occurring? Why were we encountering service desk issues? You know, we we had mm-hmm. four four or five different service desk tools spread across the company. Some of it on spreadsheet, some of it yeah. on a, a, an application. So we put in a new service desk tool. We got everybody trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within weeks, to be honest, we saw quite a transformation. So yeah. by the end of the three months, we mm-hmm. actually had got the IT reputation. A wee bit of a hard sell, but we did. We sold the message. Mm-hmm. But that transformation was, was phenomenal. Uh, and the team responded so well. Uh, because they were kind of browbeaten. They were really feeling down in the dumps. Yeah. So we had set out an initial strategy over that three months to say, this is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So we spent a bit of time uh, over the next couple of years shaping the program of work, uh, realizing that the organization had to change the way in which it worked. So we brought in um, a program team. We had a, a complete um view on overall business projects. It's not just what was IT doing. Mm -hmm. It was a business change. So myself and uh, the head of finance put together a proposal to build build into the company a business change function that actually had a whole program of work that stretched for three years. Mm -hmm. And that was a rolling three-year period that allowed us to then structure the, the amount of resource, people, and appetite for change. And mm-hmm. actually understand how that was going to make it work. So mm-hmm. I, we, we got it working, and it was great. Good. Three months to 11 years. It went Aye. well. <laughs> it certainly did. <laughs> we, we did a lot. We did a lot. Um, yeah, completely. Um, and then the head has been turned again. Is it time for something new? Have you felt a kind of bit like, right, I've done what I can do here, and then Lockheed Martin? Yeah. Well, that, that was one of these interesting conversations. I had been, over the sort of last couple of years I was within SEPA, I was actually spending about 50% of my time working with with Scottish government, with central government, mm-hmm. on delivering Scottish, Scottish IT strategy, uh, working with central government on the uh, central government IT strategy, uh, on service uh, plans, service management, and things like that. So mm-hmm. a lot of time spent outside the company. My boss said to me one day, he said, look, you've got your guys doing your job, 
and you're spending 50% of your time outside the company doing all sorts of really wonderful things for yourself, is it time for you to move on? I mean, the guys are now able to run the department without you. What do you think you want to do? And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. He said, yeah, I know. But he said, you know, seriously think about it. He said, you know, we're not challenging you here now. You're actually using other things to challenge yourself uh, outside the organization. Mm-hmm. So I thought, ah, do you know, it's time to go and do something a bit easier. I'll go and become a, an IT consultant for a while. Well, it must have been all right then. It was four years in head of service for managed services. Well, the, uh, the 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 IT consultant lasted about three four months, and uh, one of the challenges we had within the organisation is we had a number of managed services that were not really well coordinated, and uh, the the head of uh, the director for uh, the uh, services and public sector said, "Look," he said, "We've got." A challenge some of these services they're not consistent mm-hmm. we've not got a team to do this why don't we have a managed services team mm-hmm. and build up a managed services team to deliver this and that's what we did so we created a managed services team to deliver into public sector and be consistent across the services that we did mm-hmm. so we pulled together a number of different services from different companies so we had scottish government and other services that we sort of created a, a working plan around and that worked really well because it gave us the opportunity to have managed services and then have reach back into the company for development services and other things like that. So while I didn't have development teams working directly for me, I had to reach back into the company and say, right, development plans for the next bit of delivery of that service to Scottish government, for example, mm-hmm. needed this, uh, etc. So I uh, worked very closely with uh, public sector, with councils, with the Scottish government and other independent uh, Scottish public sector bodies. But I, I still kept my hand in doing some, some consultancy work. So doing strategy work and things like that, which I found really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of good time. Uh, and then you went to uh, Chief Technical Officer, CTO, at Shun Loans Company. Yeah. Yeah. Massive challenge. Uh, we had, so I had two roles in there. I, I had a, an operational team to run all of the services, and I had uh, a responsibility in develop, delivering uh, the strategy uh, for the, uh, the the new platforms, the platforms as we developed them forward. So working very closely with the uh, head of development and the development teams, we had to look at how we stabilized and re-architected some quite vulnerable and getting out of date or out of date services. So we had a technology platform that was based in some old physical architecture and we had applications that were built built on old application architecture mm-hmm. and we had to move all of that. We had some real challenges in terms of getting that architecture right. Yeah. Because some of it had been sort of looked at and going, well, we'll do this and this and this and this. And like, no, that's not actually going to work. You actually need to mm-hmm. do it in a different way so that we can actually have a, a platform we can migrate to in mm-hmm. doing so, do it securely and do it safely. We, we didn't actually have all of those moving parts in place. So we got those moving parts yeah. in place and started the migration plans to get it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, started introducing cloud, some cloud services in there as well, O365 and things like that. Yeah. And... Uh, at the same time, then create a, a development strategy uh, that allowed us to get rid of these mm, on-fire applications 
that really mm-hmm. were they they were beyond their lifetime uh, and were going to be co- causing us some real security vulnerabilities and we had to start moving them off. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to give some people context, I suppose, if they've not kind of engaged with student loans before or heard of them, I wouldn't see why if not, but they've got like 8 million customers. And I mean, the loan book of 178 billion now, I've just Googled. Um, so it's massive. You know, it's, it's, a, yes. it's a mammoth company. Um, yeah. doing all the loans and grants for colleges and unis across the UK. Absolutely. And and the one thing I'll, I'll try and take credit for, although maybe I shouldn't, um, is that by working with the operations team and, and mm-hmm. try and realign that, try and look at problems before they happen. So we're looking ahead instead of reactive. Mm-hmm. We actually went through the first spring and summer of not having major systems failures in student loans history. There you go. That's an achievement on the CV there. Yeah, well, I, I, claim, I claim complete credit for it. I probably shouldn't, but I do anyway. <laughs> but it was. We, we actually we got through into the summer uh, through our peak loading period, and we actually felt good that we hadn't had a major outage. Mm-hmm. But that was down to the way the team was working now, that we were actually looking at, looking at little things and saying, that's not right. There's something in there. We need to fix it rather than waiting until something broke. Mm-hmm. Because we did have a, a habit of, when I first went in, of oh, we've had a failure, right, who's looking at it? Well, I emailed him, right, okay, and has he done anything about it? I don't know, he hasn't emailed me back yet. Look, he's just the other side of your... Yeah, yeah, I've emailed him. But he literally was on the other side of the desk. You know, it wasn't as if he was in another part of the building. Literally, two desks face-to-face each other with a barrier in between. (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely. Seriously, did you actually just email your colleague in the next team in the next uh-huh. desk? Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So that attitude had to change. Yeah. They, 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 they wanted to work well together. They wanted to be better, mm-hmm. but they haven't been given the training. They haven't been given the opportunity and nobody to lead them and actually mm-hmm. make that difference. No, fantastic. A good year they spent there. And as you're saying, small changes have made quite a dramatic difference. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And then off to... Director of IT again, continuing with the theme uh, of leadership positions uh, with West Scott Credit Services. That's right. I got poached. Uh, I'll be quite honest yeah. about it. I did because uh, I hadn't intended to leave uh, student loans, but I got poached to go and do uh, something very similar. Uh, we had a, a big banking program. Yeah. Was not going well. We had a lot of really, really uh, challenging things to do in a very short space of time. And uh, that required uh, a completely different approach because uh, we were just not geared up to actually deliver on time. Mm-hmm. So we kind of reviewed the plan in a great deal of depth and a great deal of detail. And we hired the right people. I had a lot of right people. And uh, mm-hmm. we delivered on time. Uh, I think it's much a surprise to the bank as to anybody at the end of the day. But we did. We got there because the penalties were going to be severe. Always good motivation when there might be a wee fine coming. <laughs> Well, do you know, there's that. But then we had a lot of BAU stuff to do as well. We had to get through the eyes of 27,000. We had a whole lot of replatforming. Uh, we had a new telephony system to put in, uh, a whole lot of new architecture to put in our BAU. So while we were doing this big, shiny new toy over here, we still had to do quite yep. a lot of transformation in the business uh, and make sure mm-hmm. we were actually getting that moving as well because that couldn't be neglected. So mm-hmm. we had to make sure that we were servicing the whole business, not just this shiny new toy. How do you split up the kind of resource then when you've got kind of these big, huge programs running where are looking at a, a new banking project and you've got BAU work? 
do you bring con- you know is it contractors are you hiring more perm staff is it matrix management where they've got a BAU team leads but they've also got a project lead trying to pull the resource out what's we did all of that we embedded new people into the BAU teams we pulled people out of the BAU teams into the project teams so we had that experience and knowledge we supplemented both we had good project management we had really good business analysts uh, so what we were looking for, and, and this is one of the, I guess, one of the mantras I've always had is only hire capable people, don't hire bums on seats. You know, some people say, oh, I'll take whoever's coming, you know, we'll put them on. No, don't do it. Uh, hire capable people. But if you're going to have to hire, hire capable people, make sure that you've got them in and that they're going to stay with you if the time that you need them. Yeah. And uh, that has always paid benefit. The other part of it is when you're hiring people, get back to them quickly. You know, if you want somebody, don't read their CV three days later and get back to them at the end of next week. You know, read your CV that day, phone them up and say, right, interview now. <laughs> Please tell everyone this in the market at the moment. Um, you cannot wait a week uh, to no. interview a developer or architect. You know, it has literally got to be like this. Yeah, uh, it's worse now. Uh, with with um, the, the transition into COVID and everybody working from home and so flexible, you really have to be able to move like speed of lightning yeah. uh, right now. Yeah. And if you don't do it, you, you forget it. You, the, the time you've got in touch with the guy, he's got another job. The, I actually had this conversation uh, beginning of this week uh, in, in a different forum. Somebody asked me the question, what, what's, what's one of your biggest challenges? And I said, getting people in the door. You want to get people in the door. You've got to hire them now. You know, don't wait. So much opportunity just now in the market. Yeah, it's it is. Yeah. Um, but also, West got uh, credit services uh, on to uh, Metex. Is that right? Yes, I spent. Uh, well, that was a, that was a really uh, different uh, experience because mm-hmm. the startup company technically their application was not where they thought it was, but required quite a lot of work to do. But the physical device itself was not where it should have been. So I actually drew on a whole lot of my engineering background. Useful. To look at how, yeah, it was to actually look at re-engineering the application itself. Mm-hmm. So there was a number of challenges: thermal challenges, physical build challenges, weight, all sorts of things that we needed to look at. Mm-hmm. Almost go back to scratch and say, right, how do we make some of this work? Um, the company had put security to the side and gone, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> this is patient data. <laughs> this is an IoT device. This is one of the probably one of the most vulnerable uh-huh. devices you could actually get in the marketplace. You need to get security on it now. So we need to step back yeah. and, and redo security and, and build that into the architecture. And uh, the knock-on on that was, uh, was quite uh, substantial. You'll know better, obviously, than me in terms of kind of coding and, and putting this into practice. But it is easier... To, to build security in from the very start and go, then trying to bolt it on yeah. at the end. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Re- reversing it in breaks things uh, because you've got something working. You then put a security layer over it. It stops things working. And then you've got to try and figure out which bits are not working and how to do. Like a needle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's somebody said to me the other day there, it's like finding a needle in a needle stack. <laughs> uh, so it's, yeah. it's, 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 yeah, I would agree with that, uh, Michael. Build it in. That Actually, start your, start your testing and your security at the beginning. Uh, yeah. And if you do that, then the rest of it is just programming. I'd say just programming. <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic. It looks a very complicated device. I've Googled it while we're on. Yeah. Um, an analytics round. It looks like it's got a lot of data points. It looks very nice and fancy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 
an exciting couple of years for you there. Oh, that was, that was certainly an exciting couple of years. Uh, so, and and then an opportunity to go and uh, change direction a bit and uh, do something that is uh, much more around the governance side uh, and information governance and information security. Uh, so access to data, thinking about COVID and thinking about getting access to data from COVID, thinking about access to data for better services in Scotland. There was an opportunity to uh, to work with uh, Research Data Scotland and actually look at how we transform the user journey from a re- for a researcher to make access to data much, much better so that we can actually enable good research for public benefit, and particularly public benefit in Scotland, where we've got masses and masses of data all over the place. But getting access to that data, particularly some of the sensitive data, is really, really challenging. And it can take two to three years just to get access to data sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if it's a PhD project you've got that somebody's working on, you know, you're three years up and you haven't got access to your data yet, that's not really a good service. So that's one of the things we've been looking at is uh, how do we streamline and improve access to data within Research Data Scotland. Sounds very interesting. Something well worthy of doing to help these uh, help people out that are getting, you know, trying to get that information yeah. together and, and yeah. making that along. Yeah, um, it is. Secure computing environment. Indeed. Smashing. I mean, that concludes Alistair, our, uh, our part one. Um, of the kind of career walkthrough. How did you find it, Ori? Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, it's been People easy. People say they need to have a beer after this. <laughs> uh, beer, beer over tonight. So yeah, going to part two, uh, under kind of knowledge and experience. And obviously you've worked with Howden, yeah. Lockheed Martin, Student Loans Company, Westcott Credit Services, we've kind of talked through them all there. Yeah. A very good variety. You know, has your opinion of what a good company looks like, good tech teams look like changed over, over the years and how so? I, well, I guess I was quite lucky in the, the first company I ever worked with uh, in Yard, as I say, we, that went on to be, become part of BAE. Mm-hmm. But we had some really, really good leadership in that organisation right from the very, very top. Uh, and the consequence was we actually had good leadership and good technical people. So people knew and understood what they were trying to solve. And therefore, for me, a good company that has good leaders that inspire and embrace change, that goes right through the organization and it applies to the tech teams as well. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that came out of that is don't ever be afraid of change, mm-hmm. not just change for change's sake, but don't be afraid of change. Change is there, it's going to happen but make sure you do it well, but have that inspiration coming from your leadership that says, this is the direction we're going in. We support you and we'll make sure we get there. Mm -hmm. And the companies I've worked with have all had those in them. Uh, And I think where companies don't have that, that's when you get challenges. Mm -hmm. I can imagine, yeah, if they don't have that kind of from top level down, leading them, guiding, communication, not really, really strong advice there. Yeah. What would you say then would be your kind of top three things that you've learned? Obviously, you've kind of come from uni engineering, you've done your PhD, you know, you've been on public sector, private sector, you've done the managed service work. What would be kind of the top three things that you've learned during your career from engineer to CTO? Oh, um, I would say working as a team. Mm-hmm. You can always achieve an awful lot more working as a team. Uh, surround you with good, yourself with good people, mm-hmm. and people that will challenge you and stretch you because that helps you. It makes you uh, a better person. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
problems all seem to get solved in a similar way. You got to find out what the root of the problem is and work out how to make that better. Mm-hmm. And for me, those are the three things that you know, sort of guide how you, you you look at things. Good, fantastic. Now you're doing obviously a lot of stuff outside of your day job. So obviously a board member at Bike Night for seven plus years now. Uh, yeah, that well, it is. Yes, yeah. gosh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also New College Lanarkshire. A board member there and what, what kind of advice do you give people that want to venture out just on their day job and kind of the wider world what benefits do you kind of see from that and what have you kind of found yeah it's very rewarding to be able to do that uh you give something back to society you feel uh that you know in, in so many ways it's it's humbling that you can actually positively affect other people's lives even in small ways mm-hmm. but yeah go out and embrace it do it uh it definitely is very rewarding good and what do you think has kind of made you you know, when you when you kind of started off, did you think I want to be a CIO? I want to be a CTO. What's kind of made you successful? Is it just literally a passion, a drive? Yes, it, it's for me. It was always just do the best I can mm-hmm. uh, and and work with people uh, the best way I can. Keep yourself your mind open to new challenges, new ways of working, and new technologies. And in a sense, if you can do that effectively success comes and and where you want to get to comes out of that rather than say i want to be a cto i want to be a a cio or manager or whatever there are people who have those views in their mind and say right that's all i want to do for me it was about delivering the best i possibly could and being persistent about it making sure i could learn new things uh but not just technical things it was about learning about management about learning about how businesses work about finance so spread your mind out into these areas and understand them and then the success will come from that persistence in my view no completely and and we kind of talked about earlier before we kind of started recording and you mentioned, you know, you kind of get up fairly early. I used to, and you're, you know, you're exercising. Do you do you find exercise plays a kind of vital role in how you perform at this level? Oh yeah, you've got to be healthy. I I think uh, you've got to have a, a healthy body, healthy mind. Uh, you've got to be able to clear your mind uh, of, of things that, uh, that that cause problems in your in yourself, but also physically. Uh, if you're not physically well, then it's much more difficult to do the job you're doing. Yeah, totally. Um, can I ask you uh, for a big mistake that you've kind of had during your career then? What happened and how you fixed it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's one of these things that we, we had a problem. Uh, it, it was something that uh, occurred. A, a member of my team stepped way out of line and caused a, a fairly serious problem. And mm-hmm. it, it then caused me a problem. And I reacted, but I reacted in front of the team. Right. And uh, that was that was the biggest mistake I have ever made. And after realizing that I had done this, I kind of went, oh, God, what do I do now? Uh, so I walked away from it, went back to my office, and he came in and said, look, he said, I got this wrong. I know I got it really wrong, but he said, that's really an embarrassment to me. So mm-hmm. we went back out into the office and I apologized to him in front of the team and said, look, sorry, shouldn't have done that. Never happened again. It has never happened again. Uh, and then we went back and had the discussion in private about what went wrong, why it shouldn't have happened and what we we're going to do to stop it happening again. But from both points of view, and that was probably the biggest lesson I learned mm-hmm. in, in my career, is treat people with respect. No, it's very solid advice. Yeah. You also think about it. And you, you kind of know that, you know, what happened. Um, and we are very, people have emotions. Um, emotions run high when things go wrong. 
That's uh, really, really good advice. That. Um, what kind of advice then would you give Alistair to, I suppose, kind of techies looking to kind of better themselves, kind of starting out? Yeah, I, I've kind of alluded to that a little bit through uh, our chat, but balance your technical knowledge with your people knowledge. Learn yeah. how to lead and lead with confidence and how to inspire people to do their best. You'll never be the best technical at everything. Mm-hmm. No one understand where your, your skills are and then make sure that you can help other people that are better at individual areas than you are to reach their best and they'll work with you. And to me, that's it. Balance your technical knowledge with your people knowledge and learn how to lead. Good, good. Well, that concludes part two of Talk About Technical Podcast. Enjoy it. Awesome, Sebastian. Well, we've got five last questions here in part three for you, Alistair. Uh, more personal questions. And the first is, what drives you? Making a difference. Being able to change something. Uh, usually it's a difficult challenge, but being able to make a difference, uh, whether it's in someone's life or in the applications or in the company, but make a difference. Okay. Favourite book? Ah, I've got three, three favourite books. Uh-huh. My, the best book I have read from a written perspective, best language, was 39 Steps by John Buchanan. The, the, the reading that was it was like reading honey. It was beautifully written. One of the funniest I've ever read was uh, Porthouse Blue by Tom Sharp. I, I think I laughed all the way through it. Uh, it was uh, a wee bit scary for myself thinking back about it. But the most thought-provoking was a book called On My Way to Paradise by David Wolverton. And it was one of the books that I read and I thought, oh, that's scary because it was about artificial intelligence. It was about uh, mind control using artificial intelligence. And I thought, that is really scary. But the scary thing is, it's starting to come into real life. Yeah. So that was probably one of the scary, scariest books I ever read. I've seen it, Elon Musk's pigs. Putting uh, <laughs> <laughs> the chip in the brain. Exactly. Uh, yeah. We'll see what happens there. But yeah, oh, great. I'll put links into to them on the posts that I put on LinkedIn yeah. so people can kind of check the books out as well. Yeah. The next thing I've got here for you question-wise is what makes you feel inspired or your best self? I think working with good people and working on valuable projects. Projects are, are uh, things that will actually deliver something for somebody. So the bite night stuff, you know, it worked with a lot of really, really good people work on that, uh, give their time, and we do a lot of good work for people. Uh, and, and you can see the outcome. You can see the benefits of it. But whether it's a, a, a technical problem or whether it's a, a personal thing like that, that's what inspires me. Good, good. What is your tip for making the world a better place? No hidden agendas. <laughs> Too many people have hidden agendas. They want to do something for reasons that don't appear to be what they're doing it for. Uh, and uh, that, to me, just causes problems down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you ever seen a show called Billions on Sky? <laughs> um, yeah, that they are, the hidden agendas. It makes you almost kind of untrusting when you kind of watch <laughs> these shows, you know, you kind of think, oh, there's always uh, got something going on, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, but no, really sound advice. Final question for you, Alistair. If you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, right. Robin Williams, Barack Obama and Tim Berners-Lee. Robin Williams, because I think he was really a a talented, very talented uh, individual. Yeah. 
with a huge skill and a great loss to us. Uh, I think Barack Obama for his humility and his challenge to, to the world. Uh, and Tim Berners-Lee because of his insight and inspiration. And the last one's a bit of a cheat because I did actually have a dinner with him and it was such an enjoyable dinner. He was such an enjoyable companion. Amazing. Well, that's fantastic. So, so no, one, no, one's ha- no one's had any of them yet. At least you've got one ticked off the, <laughs> off the list there of your three. You've got two. Uh, well, one I can't get and the other's unlikely. So <laughs> that's what I, I know, Shane Rodman was a great guy. But no, Alistair, that is uh, Talking With Tech Leaders. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on a pleasure too really enjoyed it well there we have it Alistair Rennie uh, CIO CTO veteran of the IT world thanks again for listening as always it is very busy here at BIT uh, if you are a techie a developer an architect or in change management looking for a new role please do get in touch we'd be more than happy to help you and as always any recommendations Um, please continue to send them on more than happy to continue and get some great techies on here to chat thanks